This is Bonjour Chai, the Isabel and Nikki and Albert Hoffman edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzfovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. Today on the show, we are eagerly anticipating Purim, and the only way we could top last year's weed extravaganza was to go even higher. And so we set out to find out about Judaism and psychedelics. Is there a connection? I mean, like a real deep connection? We'll talk to Zach Kamenitz and find out. But before we do, let's take a swing around the Jewish world. Phoebe, have you been? I've been well. How about you, Avi? Good, good. It's been busy, but uh, always, you know, but doing my thing. Purim is coming up. We have a big Purim meal planned. Um, we have costumes for kids to deal with. We have, you know, lots of stuff happening in the house. So, uh, yeah, Purim's on my mind. That's interesting because you know what's on my mind holiday-wise? Hanukkah. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to do a little pre-Nachas Nachas where I endorse out-of-season latkes. Uh, my older daughter asked for latkes, and I thought, you know what? The weather feels Hanukkah-like. Potatoes and onions are procurable in stores. So we had latkes for dinner last night, and uh, my daughter brought a leftover latke to snack. I'm sure her classmates will be intrigued. Do you remember at the University of Chicago the last Wednesday before Thanksgiving? I do know where you're going with this. I covered it once as a journalist. <laughs> oh, latkes and hamantaschen? <laughs> yes. The latkes versus hamantaschen debate. The great latke hamantaschen debate. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, definitely latkes for me. What about you? Uh, totally. Definitely latkes also. But they used to actually have a live debate. They yes. turned it into a book, but they used to have a live debate every year at, I think it was like uh, one of the big halls um, mm-hmm. on campus. It was a huge and they would event. Get, huge event. And they would get four professors, um, like actual professors from, distinguished professors from within their respective fields to argue one or the other. Um, and so I remember being there and hearing like Austin Goolsby, who was a professor at the time, arguing pro latka. And <laughs> I'm sitting there like in the audience and hearing other professors and economists and education professors and sociologists all taking their side. And this was like a fabulous annual occasion at the University of Chicago. Yes, absolutely. Um, even though it's kind of a, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. Like it, it's of course. Lockers, but Yeah, because hamantaschen are inferior. They're just not good cookies. So that's like a problem. No, but no. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not super into cookies generally and certainly not that type of cookie generally. Yeah. So um, I think it was, it was always going to be about the latkes. Team savory yeah. all the way. Yeah, uh, you know we joke that when we go to a restaurant, my wife will order always order dessert, and I will order a second appetizer. You know, because that's it looked interesting. I would rather have yeah. that, but I want to keep eating. Um, yeah. Um, what else? What's on your mind? What 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 Jewish stuff has crossed your transom these days? Well, I saw a JTA article about. Um, that re- the headline is meet the real life sister act behind the two new 90s jewish american girl dolls so i had to see a- about these jewish american girl dolls but um so basically there are new the american girl dolls i'm going to give a whole background of what this is to the best of my ability we're, we're going to pretend i knew this all along and wasn't just you know googling it to write about it but basically these are these high-end toys these dolls that are but they're they're based on actual not actual historical figures, but sort of historically accurate uh, types. So there are these different girls uh, of different from different moments in American history. There are different races, religions, things like that. They have these backstories. There are like literal books for each doll about. I, I think somebody who actually knows about this maybe can correct me. But basically, but then there are also these physical dolls, and girls get these dolls as gifts and bring them to 
at least did many years ago to American girl stores where they would have American girl doll tea parties and so forth. I should give a little disclaimer here that I have neither ever wanted nor gotten such a doll. I cannot imagine personally being involved in this as a consumer, but it is interesting to me that this exists and I have no opposition to it. Um, that's CBC, that's CBC, my CBC, doll backstory. CBC, CBC, yes. Me, do you I know will. about the American oh, Girl dolls? do I know okay. about American Girl dolls. Okay, so please tell. Please tell <laughs> me about them. I, let, I, I was going to wait till the whole thing and the discussion and then to really get into it, but I, I have to just... I have to jump in here to quote okay. um, a former uh, host of uh, Bojrochai. I just, I mean, you are in for a world. You have, you have a young girl, right? Who is? I do, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember buying my. I wife have two this two book. young girls. Yes, so I remember buying my wife this book when we only had one. Um, I think it was by Peggy Ornstein called Cinderella Ate My Baby. And mm-hmm. we were like right in the throes of this, like, yes, of course, we're not going to get into gendered toys or anything like that. We are going to let the child do whatever they want and get into it. And then you realize that you life, your life is going to be sucked into this princess world, whether you like it or not. Um, tea parties are a thing. Draw, dress up as Disney princesses are a thing and mm-hmm. American girl dolls most certainly are a thing. I have girls that have that gone a, through it. But I, isn't that a budget thing? Because like, oh I don't, my God, it's a budget I don't thing. have strong, because I don't have strong feelings about the gender aspect. I think my feeling as I've, I'm sure said before and will doubtless say again, is that most children are gender conforming. Some are not. Mm-hmm. It's important to be accepting of those who are not. It's Absolutely. also futile to pretend that, um, the, the world yes. isn't as it is, and I have, you know, no, no expectation to have the gender-neutral toys or whatever. I think, however, that an 115 U.S. dollar doll yes. and a Toronto mortgage oh, yes. may not be compatible. Together, I have. We are the proud owners of four American Girl dolls. Um, our girls, we have visited the American Girl doll store in Chicago as recently as this past December. So yes, there is exist. still okay. a cafe. It is two floors. Okay. It is a museum. That's the way that we used to call it when we used to go visit it when we were actually living in Chicago. When we didn't really have, I think we had one um, that was given to us by somebody else. So now we have four um, that the kids are like a little past now because our youngest is nine and a half. So they're already at the tail end of like wanting this. But we went in December um, to Chicago and we went to the American Girl Doll Store because, of course, they had to. And there is a cafe. There is a hospital where you can uh, fix your broken dolls. There is a hair salon to take care of that really unruly fake hair that they have. Um, <laughs> there, you can get a manicure alongside your doll. They have special chairs at the cafe where you put your doll up so you can... This is a world um, that is a world in, unto itself. This, this is... Wow. I, this I is think world of myself building, as a cisgender woman, but this, this might be a little bit too girly for me. Proportions. You know? this, this, is, this might this be is, a little bit girlier than I can handle. This is like <laughs> you have the text and you have the midrash, and the midrash is a living world that these girls inhabit. Yes. Um, that is unbelievable. <laughs> Speaking of which, tell us about these two new American girl dolls. Yes. So the reason that the JTA was covering this is indeed that these particular American girl dolls are Jewish. They have one Jewish parent and one Christian parent. These dolls. Um, <laughs> And their story begins in 1999. And um, so I'm quoting here from JTA. American Girl just released uh, its first uh, twin dolls, Isabel 
and Nikki Hoffman, who are also the first characters from an interfaith family. Their stories take place in the late 90s and are written by um, Julia de Villiers, um, or de Villiers, I don't know, and Jennifer Roy, and it are inspired by the sisters' own childhood experiences. Okay, so this story has the obvious Jewish angle would be the whole interfaith aspect. And and I had already seen this story because a lot of the mom Facebook groups I'm in and other places online, people have been very upset about, um, but sort of tongue in cheek upset about 1999 as a historical moment yes, being treated as that long ago. Like, oh my goodness, does that mean we're old? And yes, it means we're old. But I had a totally different Jewish angle on it that I wrote about for the CJN's website, which is that I think that 90s nostalgia is extraordinarily Jewish, is about the most Jewish thing ever. Meaning late late 90s or 90s was a particularly great Jewish time? Or was it that 90s, nostal- the nostalgia for that era is a Jewish thing also? Both. I okay. think that they're, they go hand in hand. And I think this really, um, and I just kind of like, I was trying to articulate this when writing um, this piece. And I just kept thinking there's so many examples of this. So there's the general sort of pre-9-11, pre-war on terror, pre you know, conspiracy theorizing about neoconservatives with a sort of wink, you know, the sort of anti-Semitism that came through that. Uh, There's just the whole kind of, um, for lack of a better term, sort of wokeness discussions that have gotten Jews on various different uh, points in the ideological spectrum upset. Uh, There are all sorts of things that have happened um, that have been less pleasant for Jews, um, since that time. And I thought, yeah, I think there's something about the Clinton era, the Seinfeld era, the era of the nanny, Fran Drescher's the nanny, that was just a very, um, certainly for American Jews, um, a very cozy time that I think people of my demographic look back on often fondly above and beyond the way all people look back on the time when they were young as like, oh, that must have been a better time. I was young then. You know, Judaism has come up in American Girl dolls beforehand. Uh, there's a classic uh, of the historical figures named Rebecca Rubin. She lived in the Lower East Side in the 1920s, I believe, or the th- early 30s. Um, all the accessories that she has, there's a Shabbat kit and a samovar and with like candlesticks and a challah and, and stuff like that. So so definitely um, Judaism does play a large role. I mean, remember that these dolls are there to create narratives to play with and to work with. And um, having a Jewish character is, you know, makes a lot of sense. What I'm curious about um, is that in 1999, interfaith relationships was still very, very fraught. This was not something nearly as accepted as it was uh, now almost 25 years later. And I'm curious how they're going to play with it or they're just like, this is yet another marketing tool to say there's a lot of interfaith marriages uh, or, you know, different marriages of different faiths with Jews and others or Jews and nuns or whatever it might be. And that this is just yet another selling Jews point. Jews and nuns, you mean... Not the Catholic sort. You mean no religion? No. Yes, Jews of no because, Jews and and people of no religion because yes. audio only. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm thinking like, whoa! On Purim, I that? see many people relate married to Jews and nuns, but only on Purim. Um, but even then, that's anyways. So, um, so that's like one aspect of it. But I definitely, you know, I was reflecting on this. Like, what is this nostalgia? Um, and this positivity. I think that there was definitely a boom time in the late 90s for Judaism. Um, the 
Jews were everywhere and it felt good to be able to talk about it and, and say it was like a thing. Um, I think people had like a little bit of nachas, for example, about Monica Lewinsky, right? Oh, you see a Jew. This was like <laughs> not just anybody. And it thought about yes. it because one of the twins actually has a very Lewinsky-esque beret. Well, that's why. Yes. Yeah, so I wrote about Monica Lewinsky in my piece also because yes. I think there was something about that, like, there prior to that, I think there had been, been this idea of the Jewish woman as kind of like the frumpy one who, you know, Woody Allen slash Philip Roth has an alter ego who's fleeing from or it's the nagging mother. And then there's Monica Lewinsky. And while it's obviously a more problematic story and everybody knows that these days, um, at the time it was like you could be the, the hot one who the president likes. And then there's the Israel angle, which I think we will begin to perhaps touch on here, which is that I think you think of Oslo, you think of a time when I would say, and I was like, I was a child in the 90s. I don't know who, what I'm pretending, but like my impression of that time is that the sort of normal view among at least American Jews was that, yes, there will be a two-state solution. It will be wonderful. It might be difficult to get there. Whoever gets everybody there should get the Nobel Prize and well done and all of that. But like that seemed plausible. Everything was going to be fine. Mm -hmm. There was going to be peace in the Middle East. And this was just going to be resolved within it, not just within everybody's lifetime, but like probably in the next 10 years or something like that was my impression of that era. Now, are we still in that moment? We are. We are very much not in that moment. Um, and that's as good a transition as possible to uh, to really dwell for a moment on the events uh, of the past week or two in Israel. Uh, I find that they're genuinely cause for for serious concern um, and to to think about where we're at in this world uh, and for uh, time to reflect on what's been going on. I think that some of the um, worst fears of some of the uh, protesters and dissenters of the current Israeli government government are starting to come true. And that's not a good thing. That is far from a good thing. Um, I'm going to uh, bring this up in the context of a Twitter thread, uh, a tweet thread, I should say, um, from Sija, right? So Sija posts this thing. So who is Sija for the uninitiated? (laughs) The Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. They are uh, the uh, self-appointed and proclaimed, and they are the major uh, organization that is devoted to advocacy um, in uh, for Jews and Israel in Canada. So is it is it equivalent to APAC in the states? Uh, ish. We can okay. unpack that uh, okay. another time. Well, just, okay. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so they have this tweet thread and says what is happening in Israel, and they wanted to sort of like the events are you know uh, very you know Israelis are high alert as another escalation has led to more violence. Let's unpack what happened in the last week, right? What happened in Israel? And Israel is on high alert. Several days ago, the IDF held a counterterror operation in Nablus. Several Islamic Jihad and Lions Den militants were killed. Um, the, during the counter-terror operation, there were large clashes resulting in the deaths of 12 Palestinians. Eight of the 12 killed in the counter-terror operation are confirmed members of terrorist organizations like Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Lion's Den. Canadian-listed terrorist entity Hamas responded by firing missiles from Gaza at Israeli civilians. In the past 48 hours alone, three innocent Jewish civilians were murdered by Palestinian terrorists. Following the murders of Hill and Yigal Yaniv, fringe Israeli extremists took the law into their own hands and violently rioted in the Palestinian village of Huara. This violence is unacceptable and has been condemned at the highest levels of Israeli society. Uh, then they 
there's, it's weird because they have a tweet, but then they also have a picture that says the same thing but slightly different. Fringe Israeli extremists decided to take the law into their own hands and violently rioted the Palestinian village of Huwara, destroying 35 homes and torching 95 cars. A Palestinian man was killed in the clashes. Israeli leaders have condemned the violence and IDF soldiers assisted in rescuing Palestinian residents. We pray for peace and calm in the region and for Israelis and Palestinians to be able to live free from terrorism. And it ends with a picture of a Jewish kid and a kid with a kafia on his head and the caption that says, all Israelis and Palestinians deserve to be free from terrorism. Oh, I forgot to mention that these kids are sitting shoulder to shoulder with their arms around each other and they're facing away from the camera. Okay, so this is sad. This is terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I mean that. I'm just saying. Oh boy, to, to that thread. Wow. Okay, I haven't actually so, seen it, but from your description, I and I'm not on Twitter, um, so you know this is relatively new to me. How these things come out and what's going on and retweets and all that stuff. But I'm sorry, I am not going to let this moment pass by um, without calling out um, the discussions that I've been hearing online and in real life, and especially by major Jewish organizations such as Sija. Um, And honestly, like, I'm a little bit disgusted because there are Jews that are doing horrible things. There are Jews that are committing atrocities. Um, And you know, honest reporting, if this if this situation had been flipped and the same exact words were used as Israelis uh, and Palestinians and the and the, the they were the object and the subject of every sentence was flipped. Um, they would uh, absolutely be all over this and, and have huge problems with this. They would be putting out a press release, a story, analyzing this thing completely. Right when we when Sija goes and says eight of the twelve people have been are, are confirmed members of terrorist organizations, that means that Sija is not willing to recognize that is the IDF killed four innocent civilians. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't use innocent. What I noticed in the thread was when you say about the Palestinian, the one pil- Palestinian man was killed, they don't say one innocent. Yes. You know? So first of all, they, they don't mention that there are four civilians in that initial yes. clash. Yes. Right. That that happens. Yes, that jumps then, out as well. Then they don't mention that um, the Israelis um, are terrorists. Right. If this was if these were Palestinians, they would be up in arms if CBC didn't use the word terrorists. These are people c- act committing acts of terror on innocent people, and they are Israeli terrorists, right? And they write that one person was killed. If CBC had written that, again, they would say, say murdered. This person was murdered. Right. Um, the because if the Israelis that were in this situation were murdered, why was this Palestinian not murdered? Oh, I think another I mean, there's so much here. And it's I, I share your view that this is all extremely upsetting. And that you know, plainly saying what actually happened would be um, a a good start um, media wise. And I think there's just this, I guess, probably just generally North American slash diaspora thing of like being sort of like not even understanding when that Israelis themselves are often unhappy with what's happening in Israel and that you can support Israel without supporting every single horrible thing that happens in Israel, Mm -hmm. every single thing the Israeli government does. And indeed, every single thing that <laughs> just happened now. And I'm sure they're going to come back at me and say, well, Avi, but we condemn the violence and this and that. And I'm like, language, first of all, right, language is difficult. And I recognize that. So the first thing I'm going to say is Sija, be better, 
right? We are better than this. And when there are when there are atrocities happening um, and that are being perpetrated by Israelis and or Jews, we need to accept that. And if we have language um, that is you want people to use when it comes to Palestinians, um, you have to use that language for on your own, right? But the fact is, I accept and I recognize that language is difficult, right? And I want instead of saying be better and change everything, start toning down, start recognizing that the other side is in a lot of pain every time something like this happens, right? And that sometimes third party media organizations are not interested in kowtowing to your specific way of approaching something and saying there's clear sides to this and we are always right and they are always wrong, right? And to use words like murder, to use words like terrorists, um, and insisting on those things when it comes to Palestinians and specifically refusing to use them in these situations is very, very telling. Um, and I think that it should be a moment of introspection for Asija, for places like Honest Reporting, for places like B'nai B'rith, for when calling out hatred, um, recognizing that people hate on both sides and to go and say, well, you know, uh, we're different. We, we are civil. Uh, the IDF helped the Palestinians uh, that were in trouble. The uh, IDF condemned the terror happening on their side. That makes us qualitatively different that doesn't right we have people within our community that are terrorists that are violent that are not just fringe extremists as you like to call them um they are a growing they have they are the people that are in power in the government right now they are the majority and the real kicker the real kicker and we have to like absolutely mention this because i've seen literally nobody mention this at all and i assure you that this would be a major media campaign if this happened in the other direction so this photo that i described to you something seemed off to me about it Right, this Jewish mm-hmm. kid and a Palestinian kid, or a kid with a kafia, uh, arm in arm, right from the back. Um, mm-hmm. Something seemed off. Thankfully, we have Google, and we have Google Lens that lets you search for a photograph using Ooh. your camera to find it. I did the search, and the first hit that comes up is an article from 2014 in the Times of Israel. Don't worry, there's a good Canadian connection also, and the title. The headline of this piece is the story behind a staged coexistence picture. Israeli and Palestinian boys embracing in famous image were actually two Jewish friends from Jerusalem. This is a photo (laughs) that was taken in 1993 that was designed to illustrate aspirations for peace in Israel during the Oslo peace process. They were two boys, and it was taken by an American photojournalist that was shot for McLean's magazine, which has been reproduced countless times, often without Rosen's consent. And as he says, it was a symbolic illustration. It was never supposed to be a documentary photo. Um, it is wow, like incredible find, <laughs> incredible find. Um, they should make American boy dolls out of um, well, Israeli boy technically dolls out of this, out of this experience. Yeah. Well, we'll see. All right, enough of that. Let's move on to our main topic. Um, We'll get to our interview with Zach Kamenetz in just a minute or two. Uh, But I was wondering, before we even get to that, Phoebe, like, what's your relationship to psychedelic drugs? Well, I'm on 10 of them right now. No, um, really? (laughs) As we speak. (laughs) I'm like the the Woody Allen persona in... I guess Annie Hall, where there's in like every the drugs around, movie. and it's just and in everything where he's like, I don't know. I mean that that is like actually me. I'm the person who has the. I'm allowed to say this Ashkenazi alcohol tolerance, where like the the thimble of alcohol, especially since I would say turning thirty, I I cannot even like have alcohol basically without being completely useless the next day if I have like half a glass of wine, I'm hungover. So I do not have a tremendous amount of experience 
personally firsthand with psychedelic drugs. Um, I know about using a, a an old British sitcom as a sleeping pill. I don't really know much else about this. So obvious. This, this is I, up to you now. What what is your ample experience? I, have, I assume um, you're, I will you're say, tripping right now. I, of course, uh, lucidly, um, with nothing more than a Snapple and a fountain pen <laughs> ink. <laughs> <laughs> I am that good. Um, no, I, I, I actually, I will admit that I don't have any experience with um, a psychedelic drug. Uh, I, I've been fascinated by it ever since reading about uh, the new uses of psychedelics for uh, psychological trauma, for PTSD, for all sorts of um, ego destroying, ego uh, changing. Uh, approaches to um the mind and the consciousness uh ever since reading michael pollan's book uh that came out a few years ago called how to change your mind where he starts out as a skeptic and says i'm a journalist and i'm just going to go and do this and he learns a lot and realizes that these drugs this class of drugs that are known as psychedelics or entheogens or however we're going to call them are um have great possibilities for people and will like compress five years of therapy into one session and not just to remove the idea of therapy beyond that but to sort of say like hey uh here's let's get to the good stuff of therapy right this is like the the psychedelics the way he described it almost was sort of like you know how you watch season two or three of a show uh to use a tv reference or a metaphor again and then right at the beginning of the season they're like you know on the last season of X and in two minutes, they sort of like get you up to speed with everything you need to know if you hadn't yet ever watched it or mm -hmm. forgot all about it and move you on. And he's like, well, that's the point or that's one of the things that psychedelics can do um, is sort of speed up and get you through all of the stuff that gets you over your fears and all of your facing, you know, the stuff that you have a hard time facing to get to the good stuff of therapy, to get to the point where you're able to face whatever it is that you need to uh, be able to confront and move on. And I, 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 again, I only know about this from reading about this. I then looked into it briefly uh, after finding out about this and this this whole world. Uh, I actually signed up about five years ago. So it's safe to say that uh, the waiting list no longer exists and I am not on it anymore. Um, but I signed up about five years ago for a study at Johns Hopkins where they were asking religious leaders and spiritual leaders of uh, various denominations to um, take a supervised psychedelic study, like to take psychedelics under supervision. And they wanted to see what the spiritual experience was like under that. Um, you know, and I'm sure maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that because i'm sure zach knows about it mm -hmm. more than mm -hmm. i do but um i never heard from them they i mean i heard from them where they said yes we're putting on the waiting list but it's very long and so don't expect to hear from us and i didn't hear from them so um well this interesting though, because by it's it. the what you're describing it sounds like sort of two different but related things a medical use of psychedelics like you know uh, as the same as using any other sort of medicine in um a mental health context but also a spiritual, a spiritual exactly one. and that the spiritual works on the same axis in the sense that it takes years sometimes to have a spiritual breakthrough where you say i'm putting in the work i'm putting in the work i believe in this i'm doing this but i don't quite get what i'm doing it for until you're you push through and you do it it's kind of fascinating mm -hmm. to me so you know i'd like to explore that a bit more 
Before we do get to our next topic, I do want to remind everybody of our great Canadian Seder. As we've mentioned in the past couple of weeks, we are planning another edition of last year's Big Hit. We would love to hear your ideas for it. To get in on that, uh, please just email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Tell us your ideas. Tell us if you'd like to volunteer. Bonjour at the cjn.ca for the great Canadian Seder part two. Let's get to our interview with Zach Hammond. It's right after you hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. I first ran into Zach Kamenetz uh, virtually. We have still never met face to face, except uh, you know through the through these screens um, on the magic and the uh, weird, interesting world that was Clubhouse peak like 2021 when it was like a really cool thing, and we found each other in all the same rooms talking about Jewish stuff, and uh, he was out there at the forefront then uh, talking about psychedelics and how Judaism and psychedelics can interact and intersect with each other. Um, since then, Zach Kamenetz has uh, founded Sheva, which is an organization, probably the first organization, maybe even since the 17th century, probably, to intersect Judaism and spirituality and psychedelic use. Um, and so we thought, what better person to bring on uh, to talk about, you know, any sort of... Uh, mind expanding idea expanding spiritually spirituality expanding uh ideas ahead of purim then zach kamenetz zach welcome to bonjour hi it's great to be here thank you for having me zach um what exactly does shefa do um so like you said i think that we're probably one of or we or the um organization that is starting to look very carefully at what it could mean for um psychedelics to be incorporated as uh, as tools, as partners or allies in Jewish spiritual growth and development, uh, and also for the purpose of healing, individual and communal healing um, that uh, specifically Jews have to do. Uh, thousands of years of intergenerational trauma, genocide, displacement, um, the woundings that happen from our own culture and religion, um, and hopefully to continue to elevate our people and hopefully elevate the rest of the world also. So what we do specifically is we have groups dedicated to integration. That's the meaning-making pro process where people have psychedelic encounters on their own. They're looking for a Jewish space um, to do this in, to be with Jews and to be able to speak as Jews also. Uh, and they get to talk about the experiences that they had either 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago. Uh, and to do that in a very safe, vulnerable, um, peer-led way. We're also exploring, um, reopening uh, the, the great sources of, of Jewish wisdom about how have we explored our consciousness? How have we expanded consciousness um, from the very beginnings of our civilization? You know, where is the intersection between opening oneself up to the mystery, the beyond, uh, what lies past rationality 
Um, we have a lot of that in our tradition, but it's it's not really on the curriculum of uh, Jewish education in North America right now, at least in uh, liberal circles. And we want to actually raise up those very interesting maps of consciousness, maps of reality, maps of the human spirit. And we also want to find opportunities to celebrate in community you know, for people who have had these experiences one way or the other, if it's in Peru and ayahuasca or a ketamine clinic in Toronto um, or at a fish concert with a bag of mushrooms around uh, a bunch of friends, these could be very opening, very meaningful experiences. And they become some of the most meaningful experiences of these individuals. And it's important for people to feel like there are others that are on the path with them. So um, to be able to come to, into community and to be celebrating what we have learned um, what we have gained, um, not just individually, but uh, as a chevra, uh, as a community, uh, is really important too. Yeah, it sounds like you're trying to straddle and uh, the balance between this serious idea of you know the uh, ego being deflated by one you know acid trip and the ability to rise spiritually um, through that with the fact like as you said there are people that are just going to take some mushrooms and go to a fish concert and have fun right and that you're not placing a value judgment and saying that that's that's not okay right don't do that you know poor is coming up and like there are people that are going to go say no 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 psychedelics are serious and they're real and you have to treat them as and i'm like no there could be some absolute enjoyment that you can get out of just having a psychedelic experience as well is that that seems to be where you're going Uh, yeah absolutely you know again um People are doing these things in lots of different settings, and I like to say sometimes casually and sometimes consciously. Um, this is not um, to make everything as serious as I think when people start encountering um, psychedelics mostly in general culture right now. It's about medicine for PTSD, for uh, you know, for a diagnosis and a therapist. Um, but that's not how these things have been used in North America for the past 60, 70 years. And also that's not how these materials have been used in traditional cultures um, either, where, um, yes, there's ritual. Yes, there's, um, you know, coming to terms uh, and, and making a stronger community through them. Um, we don't judge. We're, we're not determining uh, how these things should be used. But... If someone has some opening within them that either they have no connection to their Jewishness, and this has opened the possibility that their Judaism can be personally meaningful and as a ballast for their lives in some ways, we want to help them make those connections. Or people who have very thick Jewish identity and Jewish practice, but just don't know what, how do I actually plug that into my personal psychedelic experience? We want to help them there too. Um, But again, whether it's fun or functional, um, we want people to know that they're not in this alone. I was wondering, you talk about like the last uh, 60, 70 years, and I was just thinking about, um, and also about fish concerts, and I was wondering about if there's any kind of tradition among Jewish musicians, and I'm including musicians who happen to be Jewish, and I'm thinking about like the late 60s and so forth, like, you know, if there's a kind of history of Jews and psychedelics there, maybe. Well, I think we have... Not to um, name any specific names, but some come to mind. Yeah, some come to mind, and they can uh, speak about that better than I. But I would say, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, this is my my working hypothesis, that 
post-Holocaust, kids growing up, teenagers in their 20s, in the 60s and the 70s, who are encountering psychedelics like general culture, you know, mostly LSD and uh, mushrooms, some uh, mescaline also. They're having major spiritual personal openings. Um, they are seeing, you know, the the creation of culture, not as something that is a given, but that there's a possibility, the entire counterculture movement. And I think that probably what happened is that the, at the same time as psychedelics are coming into the culture, there are Eastern traditions that are not, you know, weighed down by uh, the pressure and the pain of Jewish past. There are more accessible models, at least in Americanized versions of Buddhism and Hinduism, that actually talk about mm -hmm. consciousness, that talk about soul, that talk about um, presence and purpose. That's more accessible than, you know, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Wow, geez. Um, and then I think that, you know, all of the uh, Joseph Goldsmiths and all of the Sharon Salzburgs and all of the Ramdasses, all of these powerful Jewish geniuses, um, they gravitated toward these Eastern traditions and found homes in these traditions and are now leaders of them uh, because of their psychedelic experiences. The other way is that people like Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi of Blessed Memory, uh, people like Rabbi Art Green, people like Rabbi Shefa Gold, they also have their meaningful psychedelic experiences, but they want to go home with it. They want to know, I want to either, you know, for Reb Zalman, who was a dedicated Lubavitcher all of his life, there's something spiritually potent in this psychedelic experience that maybe I can actually share with more people. For Rabbi Art Green, he only started getting into Hasidut and Kabbalah, um, and then wanted to translate his direct experiences with the mystical and trying to connect it to the traditions that were taken off the table for liberal Judaism. So we have a lineage, uh, and it might even go farther back. Uh, I'm not a person that starts finding uh, drugs or uh, hallucinogens in the Bible, but you know, just as of 2020, uh, a team in Bar Ilan was able to isolate uh, cannabinoids, right, the active compound in cannabis in an altar, an incense altar that was found in, uh, in, in Tel Arad, in outside of uh, Beersheba. Um, so something was happening with cannabis in ancient Israel. Now, it didn't come to us as a continuous lineage or practice, um, but it is there also. But we have a profound tradition of expanding our consciousness in really rarefied, uh, beautiful ways as well between then and now. What Dr. Hoffman was was he Jewish? The the one the who uh, first it was not no. Albert Hoffman was was not Jewish. Okay. No, uh, but interestingly, just you know, in terms of history, so he was the first person to synthesize LSD. Um, I think his first successful successful and purposeful um, ingestion of LSD um, on what is called Bicycle Day was also the same day that uh, the Warsaw Ghetto was being uh, liquefied or li liquidated rather. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a very different history um, between uh, what happened in the Gentile world with psychedelics and what happened with Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. um, 
Excellent. It's just the previous segment we were talking about the American Girl dolls and their name is Hoffman also. And I was like, oh, what a good intersection would that have been <laughs> if the Hoffman twins from the American oh, wow. Girls from 1999 were related to Dr. Albert Hoffman. But, uh, oh, not to be. So what practically, what does the intersection look like? I mean, it's clearly going to be very, very varied. But what are some examples, right, of some of these experiences that people have been able to synthesize, to use the term, um, Judaism with a psychedelic experience? Yeah. Um, Well, what we have been doing, because these materials are um, are still illegal uh, in this country, although things are changing very quickly. You've seen places like Oregon, Colorado, um, various cities which are decriminalizing things. Um, but on the federal level in the United States uh, are still illegal. They are still Schedule One substances. Um, but I think a lot of the research that is happening in places like Johns Hopkins, NYU, UC Davis in Northern California. I signed up. up a, I signed up for the the spiritual leader study at Johns Hopkins many years ago, but they never. Oh, did they you? Never, they, I, yeah. I never got it off the waiting list. <laughs> oh well, um, we could talk about that maybe another time. But um, I think when we're seeing all of this profound research, not only about um, you know what is available to people in the in the uh, psychological uh, space, but what is available spiritually, what is available, you know, transpersonally, as they call it, beyond oneself. Um, and what we're finding when people come to us is that they've either had an experience and they want to ground, anchor, make meaning of those experiences within their Jewish framework, um, or they're about they're preparing for an experience and want to know. What is the ritual that I could be bringing here? How could I prepare myself for this in a Jewish way? Um, that That is, I think, really valuable. And also, um, what's important is that most of the spaces that people are finding themselves in that are um, psychedelic, whether it is ketamine clinic, again, or whether it's working with an underground therapist, is that those spaces are not always conducive to uh, one's Jewishness, either in the iconography or the music uh, choice, or even just the assumptions about um, what is happening, what is occurring to that person at that time, or what's even the best advice to give a person in the integration. So we are giving people, I think, tools and criteria to say, you know, how do you allow your Jewishness to show up in this space? Um, how do you let your tradition guide you? How do you even call on your ancestors? Um, your ancestors to support you in this process. So we are taking the language that seems to be permeating psychedelic space. And we're also bringing in these aspects of Jewish practice, Jewish religion, Jewish spirituality that we, I, I myself was not raised with, you know, do you have a personal and abiding relationship with uh, Avraham Avinu and Sarah Imenu? I mean, Me personally, that, that, that is something that, that is, yeah, you personally, well, I mean, I mean. I'm a rabbi. I, I, do I have a personal relationship with them as in like, do I think about them, uh, one-on-one? 
not necessarily, but I do think about other characters. I probably relate more to the rabbis of the Talmud yeah. or the Maimon, the Maimonideans because sure. I am more of a rationalist. But but it's a great question. Like I was going to ask, you know, even let's say hypothetically, right? To to get really grounded and let's say. I know we're yeah, going to, it's hypothetical, but it's not, but it's, but it is, but I'm like, suppose I get Mishloach Manot this week on, you know, and somebody happens to include in my Mishloach Manot this week, uh, you know, a tab of acid, right? It's, uh, it's, it's something that will, uh, help my Purim go, go forward, right? What would I do to, to make that a more Jewish experience? Well, the first thing that you should do is maybe not do a, dr- a tab of acid the first time as your first psychedelic experience. <laughs> Again, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give any direction in that way. Um, I I would think that um, you know, in order to be upholding the mitzvah of the nishmartem et nafshotechem, right, to actually be guarding your body, taking care of yourself, um, you would try to find a, a testing kit to make sure that what you're getting is. Um, and what you're putting into your body is what someone has told you, mm-hmm. right? So that this is what we call harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's number one. Uh, the second thing that you might do after you have verified that it is what they have told you it is, um, is to think about your intentions, right? That we have in the Jewish language of prayer, um, we have kavana, mm-hmm. our intention setting, right? The direction that we're hoping to go in. Um, to be able to say, like, what is my purpose here? Not just, um, you know, stick out your tongue and buy the ticket, then take the ride. But what would I actually hope to get out of this experience? And then the other piece is the keva. You know, what are what is the space in which I would want to do this that is safe, that is supported? Um, do I want someone with me? Do I want someone to be minding the store while I go fishing inside my own consciousness? Um, and be really intentional about, do I want to be listening to music? Do I want to be moving my body? Um, are there any, you know, do I want prayer or, or ritual to be part of this? Can I and just jump in and ask a really practical please. question that relates yeah. to this? Because I am a complete ignoramus in these matters. How long Same. does an acid trip or whatever the the kids call it or whatever how long would it last because i just i'm thinking like most of the people i know myself included have like small children you know what i mean like this seems Mm -hmm. like it would be kind of a a i'm picturing some sort of retreat again like late 1960s a lot of people who maybe do not have a ton of practical obligations sure of course well you know just like avi had started to uh indicate in his earlier comment you know, all of this, all of this information about everything is available and people really should do research. Um, there's good information out there, um, on the internet about the, um, the subjective effects of all of these chemicals and plants and fungi. Um, but when we're talking about LSD, for example, this is a very long acting compound, right? Someone with a, you know, with a regular dose, if there is such a thing, you know, that could last up to 10 to 12 hours. This is a, uh, this is heavy work. Um, so, you know, someone who doesn't have all of that time um, to give either because of their own responsibilities um, might choose something else. So, you know, someone who is working with ketamine in the clinic, uh, this might be something that they do for one to two hours. Um, someone who's using any other compound could be from one hour uh, it could be 20 minutes to four to six hours. So again, you need to know what you're getting into. And that's part of the um, uh, upholding of that mitzvah of guarding yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it fascinating that that's 
you know, it sounds like what you're doing probably could be what anybody is doing, but grounding it in Jewish texts and Jewish ideas, right? Even the preparation for it and the way in which you come forward to it is doing that. Are there any people that have done like created rituals that are specific to um, a psychedelic that have a strong Jewish content that are innovative that you're like, you know, that's, if you want to know what people are doing with Judaism psychedelics, look to that. Yes, plenty of people are doing this um, uh, individually. They're doing it in small groups. Um, you know, I, I'm not at liberty to share anybody's name here, um, but people are working with this, and, and we're you know, we might be the first organization that's dedicated to working these things out. But there's a lot of um, of great work by great individuals out there, um, and we're wanting to raise them up in in the ways that are. Um, I noticed my old friend uh, from um, University, Ami Silver, is on your uh, faculty. Ugh. Yeah, he's, truly, uh, truly he's a fantastic holy educator. Holy man, a brilliant educator. Um, he's also a therapist. Um, and so people are people are quite innovative with their rituals. I think, you know, whichever whatever is the desire of a person's heart, if they want to have Shabbat energy. People are setting a full Shabbat table for themselves on a Wednesday um, just to be able to bring that that kind of awareness. Or they're um, bringing people over for Friday night, um, but having the entire evening be infused with cannabis. Um, and people are trying to be intentional about how much and when, um, you know, what what is the space for ritual? What is the space for silence? Um, do we also schedule uh, a hike um, that Sunday after so that we can begin to integrate and talk about what it was like for us. In Toronto, um, often a, a Friday evening could be infused with cannabis just if you walk down the street. But sorry. Of course. Canada joke. I mean, you would talk about Canada. I am I, aware of people in, um, you know, cottage culture. Um, in Canada that, you know, that they spend a week at the cottage with their friends um, and are and, and for the purpose of uh, expanding consciousness when the sun goes down around the fire um, by the water. So um, people are people are doing this in lots of ways that, in please God, are nourishing their souls. And at the same time, you know, we we know that people can have negative experiences, um, and that's not just because of the subjective effects, but they found themselves in a situation where they didn't know the person um, that they were actually working with as well as they should have. Um, they're going to retreats that they, you know, were, they didn't do enough research about it and find themselves in, uh, in harmful situations. And so again, this is not just because, you know, that drugs are cool. Um, but people need to also be, Wait, drugs are be cool? aware that they're, and, <laughs> <laughs> Drugs can be okay. cool, but um, but they but um, you know I would say maybe the the drugs themselves are relatively safe, but the company that they find themselves with um, could uh, be less than safe, and so um, people need to be um, more careful about that than the substances. Is that something that might change in terms of the? Is it because? Drugs are illegal, and you don't know what's in them. Does that play a large role here? Do you think? Um, I would say, you know, uh, drug testing, regardless of the drug, is a very good practice. Um, 
I think part of the issue is that because these things are still illegal, um, it's that prohibition actually allows um, bad actors who are not regulated um, to act with impunity. And because people often are so are often desperate, right? Especially now, you know, I, in the past month, I have received um, more emails and calls about people's children who have treatment resistant depression, that they have tried everything that they have tried um, SSRIs, antidepressant medicine, they have tried talk therapy, and they see all of these press releases about psychedelics can, psychedelics may, psychedelics could heal this particular ailment. And because they are so, so um, loving and scared for their loved one, that they'll do anything. And I think that that allows uh, people who, you know, are either um, doing this, but are not doing it in the best way. Um, People who are, you know, uh, shamans for no particular reason other than they have access to the medicine. Um, People can be taken advantage of. And um, that also means, you know, the, the integration process, not just come somewhere, stay for six hours and go home, but how is a person being held after the fact? How are they, um, how are they able to process what has happened during the session? Uh, is there an ongoing therapeutic relationship, even if it isn't with a therapist per se? Um, and so I say, eventually, we are going to be able to move into the space that is outside of medicalization, um, but is something that's closer to um, maybe pastoral care, um, where we are actually offering spiritual direction, hashpa'a. Um, that is utilizing uh, these medicines, these plants, um, but it is for other purposes than just the, the treatment of, of, uh, of uh, mental health disorders. Um, so we are, we, are, we are making our path toward that future. Have you had any pushback from uh, Jewish communal leadership, whether rabbinic or other communal uh, leaders who have said that this is not a path that the Jewish community should be going down and uh, you should not be doing this? Um, you know, there's, there's very little. The pushback that I have gotten um, is either historical, meaning people who were around in the 60s and 70s and have um, mostly uh, anecdotal uh, stories about how people who used these substances back then, it um, was deleterious to their well-being or their mental health. Again, um, people not being careful with the set and the setting, uh, the keva and the kavana when these things were happening, um, that yes, that you know, this, these can be destabilizing experiences for people if they're not held in a, in, in a good container. Um, so that's one pushback about what people have seen in the past. And you're just, um, whatever work you're doing, if if you're not advocating, you're just there to catch people, um, is still giving, you know, a hecture, uh, to these things. That's on one end. On another end, what I would actually like some more time and thought to work through is, um, people from, uh, more religious, uh, orientation who say, 
this is a shortcut to spiritual work. This is not part of our Masora. This is not part of our tradition. Uh, our tzaddikim, our, our wise people, our sages did not use this to ach- achieve the uh, heights of uh, spiritual refinement. And this is just the easy way. Or even whatever you achieve is like nothing because you didn't do it um, according to the traditions that we have uh, for this. And um, I would like to understand the nature of what it means for there to be a shortcut. Also, because all of the people that I have talked to don't see this as the apprehension of some like final thing, but see this as the beginning of a path of uh, acquiring knowledge and wisdom. And also, I would say that the easy path is probably hard enough. Uh, this is this is maybe um, a shortcut, but a shortcut to a longer road. Um, we even learn in Chabad, uh, Chabad Hasidus, that there is a short, long path and a long, short path. Um, and so for a lot of people who are uh, working in this way, um, it could be a sh- it could be a shortcut in the moment, but they are introduced to a much longer uh, process um, of of spiritual development. So I need time to think about more about that. Sure. Um, well, you know, there's a to go on the line of Hasidic teachings, there's a famous Hasidic teaching about how Yom Kippur, right, is Yom Kippurim, that it's it's a day that is almost like Purim, that is almost at the level and that the ability, that one, the heights that one can reach on uh, Purim are actually higher than the heights that one can reach on uh, on Yom Kippur. And people think about the physical dissolution, right, the, the ability for you to go and be a better person by uh, letting go of everything in your body. Um, what better time to think about this in the days leading up to Purim than the the ability to uh, let go of the ego and the possibilities and the benefits of, psych- of psychedelics, um, especially through joy and not just through a um, you know uh, a long scary process. Um, and so, uh, I encourage everybody to go check it out at least, even if you're skeptical, even if you're just more interested in hearing about it. Uh, your website is uh, shefaflow.org. Is that it? Um, mm-hmm. To find out more, That's they right. are not going to point you to anybody that is going to do anything illegal. They are just going to point you to resources for integrating other ideas into a Jewish context. Zach Kamenetz, thanks so much for coming on Bonjour Chai. Thank you. This was really fascinating. Great to be here. Thank you again. And now it's time to show for our nachas this week. Phoebe, what's your nachas? Well, mine actually has a bit of a CJN connection because our colleague Ellen Besner just uh, interviewed Dr. Daniel J. Drucker, um, an award-winning Canadian researcher behind uh, the diabetes drug Ozempic and other such drugs. Um, the, but Is this the, the drug that's like taking the nation by storm and... Making well, people lose indeed. their weight. Yes, yes. So my my nachas is um, well. Well, I also have nachas for you know miraculous drugs of all kinds, um, which is perhaps on topic also for today generally. But um, 
That's not what I mean in this context, of course. <laughs> but I, I, but course. what I'm going to praise right now is Matthew Schneier's New York Magazine cover story about um, the off-label uses of such drugs and what they mean for the body positivity movement. So basically, the same drugs that can be used to really sort of in this revolutionary way um, treat, I believe it's type 2 diabetes, can also... Um, allow a fashionable, thin woman or person of any gender identity uh, become even slimmer. And apparently there's a bunch of that happening in fashionable circles in New York City and elsewhere. And anyway, the article, though, um, Matthew Schneier's article in New York Magazine is just really, really interesting in terms of what it says about there There had been this kind of cultural moment where um, it really... It was supposed to be a thing of the past, wanting to be skinny. People weren't supposed to want that anymore. People were supposed to have sort of moved past that as a goal. And um, evidently that now that it's possible to take an apparently quite expensive, at least in this off-label usage medication, to be skinny, you got a bunch of people doing that. So yeah, um, I really recommend that article. I will check it out. I discovered an album. Um, I I have mentioned in the past multiple times how I love Jewish music. I love music in general. Um, there, I find that there is less and less great Jewish music that is coming out lately. Maybe I'm just not discovering it. So if you have albums that you think I should be listening to, you should um, be sending them to me. But I did discover a new album um, by this group called Raza, and their album is called Capella. They are associated with Hadar in New York and their Rising Song Institute, I believe. Um, but it's a recording of 22 women singing Hasidic Nagunim, uh, Hasidic songs, like mostly wordless songs. You know that it's supposed to be deeply moving because they use harmonium and they use like open drums and like cellos as the minimal instrumentation behind it. But you often hear these Hasidic songs being sung by male Hasidim um, at male Hasidic events and they're just all singing together, especially on Shabbat without any instrumentation. Um, and this is the first instance that we have of women. Generally, a lot of them are probably ex-Hasidim, not necessarily all of them, um, but they recorded some videos. They did a photographic documentation. It's a whole project. Um, but the album is available on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get, you know, all wherever you are listening to Bonjour Chai, obviously, you should go and check out this album, um, Raza Capella. It is, it's beautiful, it's haunting, it's fun. Um, there is a sense of humor and joy that I don't always hear when you're hearing men singing these nigunim, these songs. Um, but I had a lot of fun and I've been listening to it on repeat for the past week since it's been out. Maybe we will um, go out with an excerpt. Phoebe, it's fabulous as always. This has been a fun show. Thanks, Avi. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending March 4th, Shabbat Parashat Titzaveh. 
The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour High. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. <laughs>